This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. Students of color are significantly more at risk. We read the data. They are five to eight times more at risk than their white peers. And let me tell you, I believe so deep down in my soul that if if a white child was eight times more likely to contract a virus than a Hispanic child, we would not be going back to school. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. One, two, two. interchangeable. White ladies! Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Crossing. I'm Hope. I'm Megan. Hi, and I'm Evelyn Lopez from uh, Crossing Division. We are so excited to be having our second Interchangeable White Ladies Crossing episode. We are so um, happy to be joined by Evelyn again today. We all were talking and decided that it was about time that we come back together and have a follow-up conversation for the last episode that we have regarding um, the school districts and schedules and returning and there's so many different things being said and so much information out there that we thought that it would be the right time for us to come back together and have a conversation about what is new since the last time we talked. Well, so, let me ask, can I ask about that? Because I am not a teacher and I don't have children, so I'm sort of outside of schools. And when we last talked, the schools had proposed a sort of a quasi come back to the classroom plan that we all thought was a bit questionable and certainly was not going to happen and did not happen by February 8th. So what's happened now? What are the plans at this point? That is a wonderful question. And there's actually a lot, a lot of different pieces to it. So first, what's new is a lot more has come out about the schedule that the district proposed in some really um, questionable means that the district used to get to that place um, came out the district lied to the union about the measures that were taken in creation of that schedule came out that the district lied about teachers having input on the creation of that schedule they did not um, and so there's a whole other layer of that right that it came out that the district essentially violated our contract the teachers union contract by by the way that they implemented that schedule. Next, um, another really new um, step is that the district has come out and, and has dates for the return of third through 12th grade, all happening in the month of March. So um, third through 12th grade are all returning to hybrid learning in, in the month of March. So that's- Mm -hmm. To reiterate for audience members, hybrid means that they'll be part-time and face-to-face on one day or a few hours of a day, yes. and then they'll also be online. So it's combining yes. those two 
platforms. Okay. Yes. Um, so everybody's coming back in March. So everybody's That's coming back in March, um, which there, there's a lot to unpack there. And then also um, the CDC has now released their new guidelines for schools returning. Um, it is a 38 page document that has a lot of information in it. There are five major steps or strategies for returning that the CDC has kind of um, highlighted as well as creating new um, measures for the community transmission rates and what they suggest if the community transmission rates are at a certain level, which are in direct contradiction to what Washington State's transmission phases are. So there's a lot to unpack in terms of the information that has come out since our last episode. Well, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with uh, betrayal and uh, violations, or do you want to get right into what the, and I'll be nice here, what the fudge is going on with the idea of moving everyone back into the classroom in March? And when I say in March, to me, that still feels like, you know, sometime in the future. But in fact, today is February 15th. Right. So when yeah. we say mm -hmm. in March, we mean in two weeks. Yes. Mm -hmm. This feels like it would almost be an episode on Netflix, the way you set that up there with like intrigue and deception <laughs> and lies, like coming to you on Netflix, except it's not. It's coming to you through the school district. <laughs> yes. So, is, so what about this lies and betrayal and violating the contract? I mean, that's really, that's big. That's a big deal. I mean, this is a community here in Tacoma that I think, I'll say, I feel like overwhelmingly supports and loves its teachers. Now mm -hmm. that may wane at times, and this may be a time during when the love is maybe a little lower, but generally this community really does care about its teachers. So mm -hmm. that surprises me that there would have been this sort of serious type of um, discussion going on without really bringing the teachers in. Well, and also the fact that this is a, a union town, I would argue that Tacoma is very yes. union oriented. We support healthy contracts and healthy negotiations and everybody standing their ground and mediating and working together. And so that also, I think about that layer as well. I absolutely, that's um, a point I was about to make, right? That I look at union as a union town. I look at union as a union strong town that has the the economy of Tacoma has been built on the backs of unions um and I think what has happened during this process is very offensive to the relationship between unions and their the the employer um the district did not consult any teachers when creating a brand new schedule. The, the district did not follow proper protocols as outlined in the teacher's contracts when implementing a new schedule. Um, the district did not seek approval from the union before releasing that schedule to the public. And then in fact lied to the union when saying that the teacher communities in schools had voted and approved of this schedule, which in fact did not happen. Um, it's called SCDMs. They're essentially um, teams. Site council. Yeah, yeah, site council yeah. decision makers. Site council decision makers, which 
in in our contract, it says that any time that there is a schedule change at the building level, the SCDM, the site council, has to vote and approve on that schedule in an official manner at an official meeting, and that did not happen. Um, it's a bit confusing so, hearing you say this because um, when we look when we talked last time, we talked about the document that was released from the district that said that the principals had been involved. So as part of what you're saying, also like. Lo and behold, actually, the principal weren't involved and also teachers weren't involved. I think that that is a little bit more of a gray area in terms of the principal's involvement in the creation of this schedule. I have heard a couple different accounts. And that's the other thing is that like now we're mo- we've moved into like the ooh, I like some so and so heard this and hearsay. Yeah. And um, but from from things that I have heard that the the district created the schedule and then brought it to middle school principals first, um, had the middle school principals take a look at it and approve it, and then it went to the high school principals for the high school principals to take a look at it and approve it. In From my understanding, the way that this schedule was created was the district did it and then brought it to the parties and said, here it is, do you agree or not? Um, and which, which to be clear really, listeners is not the same as getting input and not. you know what I can't help but thinking like somebody's partner maybe was a teacher and like looked at it at dinner and was like oh that's interesting and then maybe they're like yep that's teacher ready. approval and, <laughs> yeah and so I can't speak on the level of yeah. input that they actually solicited from the principals right like I have no I have no insight into that But I can say that what I have heard is that it wasn't collaborative meetings. It wasn't um, something where there was input in the creation of it, Mm -hmm. um, that it was created and then they solicited feedback. And also that there was no time to really workshop it. Yeah. Yeah. So is this, this for that February schedule we were looking at, the one that was supposed to go into effect February 8th or maybe was going to go into effect? It did go into effect, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. So, mm-hmm. so this is the lack of process and lack of consultation that's required under the contract mm-hmm. that did not happen mm-hmm. for, yeah. for that for that you know draft schedule or plan schedule. So let's do this. Let's say okay. Let's give them a little bit of a benefit of the doubt. You know, we're in COVID. We're remote. You know, you don't have that opportunity for that collaboration that occurs in the schools. You know, if, if this was going on, if there was a big change, you know, the teachers would all have an opportunity to talk, check in with their unions, shop stewards, check in with their union, everyone would be available and talking. Um, so maybe some of that gets missed. But did they do any of that consultation and discussion before this new idea of rolling everyone back into the schools in March? No. <laughs> So they're so twice now. Oh, yeah. uh, yes. And this and t- to be very clear, this is what happened at the beginning of the year when they created the semester one schedule. The district just told teachers that this is what it's going to be. And teachers pushed back and said, listen, having kids sit in front of a computer for 300 minutes a day, four days a week is probably not the best for their mental health. And that's what the teacher said. And the district pushed back in the same way they pushed back at this. And it this has been the MO this entire year is it's kind of a put up or shut up, put up and shut up and just deal with it. And no, there wasn't consultation on the return. Um, I also, you know, in the last episode discussed my 
frustration with the union and the union leadership. And I think that this is in regards to returning to hybrid is where my frustration really comes forward with the union leadership as well as the district. Um, it just kind of feels like the district is making decisions and they're telling the union this is what's happening. And the union is like, kind of pushes back, but not really pushes back in a more like, um, I don't know what's the like word. a push on your shoulder, like a light push, like, oh, get like, out. oh my gosh, like, get out of here. I don't think like, so. I don't, like <laughs> I don't think so. And then like has a wink at the end. Like, I don't, I don't know. Wink. Like, you know, like it just, um, and I think what has to be said is to be very clear, teachers have not been surveyed since August from mm -hmm. the district or the union. Somebody and, should be sending out a survey. And like I'm families, pretty good at making up surveys real quick. Let's yes. go. And families have not been surveyed since August. And to to claim that nothing has changed for families or teachers since August is ludicrous. Mm. That it, it is just unbelievably disrespectful. And I think that that's where a lot of the frustration is. And I was talking with Hope um, this weekend and saying it feels very Trumpian, right? Like it feels very like, well, if we don't ask, we won't know. If you don't ask. You won't know how mad anyone if, is. Yeah. Like we've all done it, right? Don't yeah. ask how good this dinner is if you we don't, don't want to hear the answer. Yes. If we don't <laughs> test, the numbers are going to look really good. The numbers look so good. Like COVID isn't even a thing in the states. Like especially in those states where there's the no only testing. reason we have so many cases is because we're testing a lot. You know, like it just feels <laughs> very like. Well, listen we're not hearing that people are unhappy with returning. And in my mind, I'm like, of course you're only hearing from families that want to go back because the families that are okay staying virtual are not contacting you to be like, keep going. This virtual is really yeah. working for me. You know what I mean? Like there's, well, there's silos, to... right? You're going to have yeah. silos. So like we all have lived in echo chambers are in echo chambers. And so how do we, you know, if you're only talking to a few family members or friends that you're like, who are fine with a thing or not fine with it, that's what you're going to think is the dominant narrative rather than going, okay, I'm in a silo. How do I like get out of this bubble and check um, on something else? And what's my moral responsibility if I'm a leader to do that as well? Well, and it really depends on what the question is too. Yeah. So I would say you would have 100% agreement from everyone if you said, um, if there was a way that we could bring kids back into the classroom, half time, let's say not even go for a full half time, so that they can finish the year strong. And we can, we can be assured that the facilities will be clean, that everyone will be provided with masks, that we will be using HEPA filters in all of our air uh, internal mm -hmm. systems, that we will be, you know, monitoring very closely, that we'll reduce class sizes down to 10 students per classroom. I mean, I'm coming, you know, uh, what do you think about that? What would you say? You would say, well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah. you don't know right now, first, you don't know who's been asked. You don't know what they've been asked. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You do know that the majority of teachers and the majority of parents have not had an opportunity to weigh in on this. And I would feel fairly confident myself in saying 
all of those things I listed out are not on the table. Mm-hmm. And that's just it, right? So people who often want to push back or, or hurry to return, they're ignoring certain guidelines and accepting other ones that are convenient to your point, right? There's no consistent testing. There's some conversation about wearing masks and some conversation about social distancing and like maybe get some extra hand sanitizer around, but there's no systematic approach to it. And I think, you know, from over here, like watching that and listening to that and kind of trying to follow along, that's something that really strikes me as the dissonance between that as someone who's been doing face-to-face at times this year and then also remote. And when we've gone back and forth because of our inability to like make sure everything is safe for everybody. But a huge component of that is you have to do all those measures together. That's, it's not like you could just be like, we're wearing masks and then it's fine. Let's touch each other, you know, or like, let's have some sanitizer, but we're not doing the social distancing. We're not doing the masks. And honestly, the testing is one of the most important factors. And I think in the U.S., yeah. it really seems like, you know, from my observation, it really seems like that's the one people just want to shove under and someone's rug because it's the hardest. Maybe it's the most expensive And, um, it's challenging to try to to do, but I I honestly feel like it's one of the more safe measures, um, for making sure the staff stays safe and then doesn't transmit anything to kids or get anything from kids and then spread that with families. I, and so before we like really jump into this part of the conversation, I think outlining what the CDC has now released, um, for returning to school because there are mitigating strategies that the mm-hmm. CDC has outlined, um, right? There's like five strategies. I think it's like mask wearing, social distancing, hand washing, disinfecting surfaces, and oh gosh, what's the fifth one? I don't, I can't remember the fifth one, but it's... Um, Yeah. And so there are those five mitigating strategies, right? But there's also the new, um, like, did you say screenings? Did you say screenings? Yeah. Oh, contact tracing. So that's the fifth one is contact tracing. Um, And so those five things need to be in place. But also, I, I think that what people are going to not want to focus on is the strategies that the CDC has outlined in high transmission communities, which Pierce County currently is. Um, so like I said, the CDC rates of transmission are different than the Washington state rates of transmission right now. Washington state has it as 350 cases per 100,000 people for returning through middle school. Um, the CDC has, and then, and then for high school, it's 200 cases, cases for every 100,000 people. The CDC has said it's 100 cases for every 100,000 people for middle school and high school. So anything above 100 cases for every 100,000 people, anything above that middle school and high school should be virtual unless there are mitigating strategies. But one of those mitigating strategies, if you are going to send middle and high school to in-person in the high transmission range, which we are, is weekly testing, Mm -hmm. weekly testing. There is absolutely no, that I know of, no plan for any testing for teachers or students. And so I, it's just, I was reading an article and, and somebody was like, you can't pick and choose what strategies you want to implement. Mm-hmm. The only way that this works is if you implement all of them. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is really going on here? I mean, do you think that the district really thinks it's going to get kids 
back into schools in two weeks. Yes. Oh. So I mean, that's just logistically a lot of pieces need to happen. I mean, a lot of these, a lot, and I'm thinking like the people who, at, you know, schools sort of run on the backs of, you know, the school bus drivers and the custodians and the, mm-hmm. you know, people who work in the cafeteria and, you know, are they all good to come back to work? And that's what I think it's, it is so much more than classroom teachers. And I think also it's, um, I, I don't know. I, I, but yes, I, I genuinely think that we are going back on, on March 1st, third grade is going to be like returning in person. I think that on March 4th, sixth graders are going to be returning in person. I think that March 15th seniors are going to be returning in person, right? Like I, I am a, I am a senior teacher. I am, I am slated to return to in-person teaching on March 15th and high school. So high school seniors are going back before in this plan before fifth, seventh and eighth graders seniors are going to be returning. And I, and I return on the same day that fourth graders are returning. And so it's, I I don't think that the community at large in Pierce County, especially if you don't have kids recognizes how Mm -hmm. many people are slated to go back to work and go back to in-person and being in large gatherings in two weeks. Yeah. You know, it strikes me if I had kids, so let's suppose I had a, a child in high school, I would really want to have the district having a public meeting with an opportunity to ask questions to have it laid out for me to say, uh, you know, because really what we're talking about, kids are back in March. So March is kind of lost, right? March is going to be pure chaos the entire month with people coming back and trying to figure out and where's my locker because they didn't have anything. I mean, they didn't go to school in the fall. So nobody has anything. It's like, you know, orientation week, all over again where do I go where's my classroom where's my locker what do I need I I don't have my you know this I don't have my that um so March I kind of think is in terms of instruction is just a loss so you've got April and May two months 60 days of possible instruction in this year and before I send my kid back for 60 days not even two months to take the risk for two months, mm-hmm. I want to be assured, you know, how's this going to look? Where are they going to go? Where are they going to get dropped off? Who's the school bus driver? Well, for high school, they don't even have that probably. So, you know, are we talking my kids getting on Pierce Transit? Right. How does A that right? Yeah. You know, sure. yeah. so because where are they, where are they going to eat lunch? You know, I don't yeah. want them going necessarily off campus to a restaurant right now. Right. Um, you yeah. know, I, I just, I would have a million questions and I would not want to get a little fact sheet. I would want to have a meeting where someone's going to answer these questions because otherwise, you know, I'm going to say, fudge it, guys. I'm not sending my kid back to school for two months. So do you want to hear even the worst part? So I think that- Wait, can we we take a break and then you can come back with the worst part? Let's take a quick break. Let's take a quick break. Hello, this is Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Citizen Tacoma, and a proud Alaska Airlines frequent flyer. 
Everything in our day-to-day -day life seems to involve more hassle these days. So it feels good that Alaska Airlines is making something easier. Alaska has made air travel virtually touch-free. Here's the rundown. When you check your bags at the airport, you won't have to touch the kiosk to print your bag tags. They'll print when you scan your boarding passes, or you can even print them from home. When you board your flight, they can scan your boarding pass from as much as six feet away. Now, the lawyers want me to say that this might not work if the lighting in the terminal is low or if the print quality of your boarding pass isn't great. But still, kudos to Alaska for trying to keep physical distancing at every point of the trip. And don't forget, you can pre-order your meal from your phone or from your computer. You can even put your card on file in case you decide mid-flight to splurge on a local wine or beer. Get your drink without pulling out your card. Now that's the perfect blend of convenience, safety, and temptation. Those are the thoughtful details that make me choose Alaska Airlines every time I fly domestically. When you're ready to travel, rest easy, because Alaska's got this. Skip the travel sites and visit alaskaair.com to book your next flight. Thank you, Alaska Airlines, for making travel smoother, and thank you for your support of Channel 253. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez again. So before we get back on the record, as I say, with interchangeable white ladies crossing, um, and before Hope and Megan tell us the worst part, I'd like to say, if you're not yet a member of Channel 253, you really should be, because this is the type of content that we need in our community, because let's face it, we don't always have the information that we should have from our elected officials or from anyone else, and this is one way, peer-to-peer, neighbor-to-neighbor, you can stay informed. $4 a month, $40 a year, well worth it. All right, let me hear it. What <laughs> is the worst part? So if you take into account how many hours um, a, let's say a senior, they are going to be coming back the earliest with this schedule from now, from March 15th until the end of the year, it will total 11 days of in-person instruction. What? What? Tell me that again. It will be oh. 11 days because it's three hours on Monday. Let's say cohort A, your child is going to be going or a high school student will be going for three hours on a Monday afternoon and three hours on a Tuesday afternoon. That's the only in-person instruction that they are receiving in this new schedule. There will be 11 weeks left of instruction for high school seniors. That means that it is one, it totals in terms of hours of instruction. It is one day a week. It is, you are fighting, we are fighting for mm. our seniors to have 11 days of instruction. It's even worse for 10th and 11th grade. It will total nine days of instruction. <laughs> nine days of in-person instruction. If we want to go with just days, right? It's double that, right? So seniors, it's 22 days that they're stepping on campus. Which is probably what's the marketed talking point. The marketed, but right? no, like, if we're talking- close to a month, guys. It's close to a month. If we are talking, if we are talking um, hours of a day, it is 11 days for seniors of in-person instruction, 11 days of full day. And to be really clear, as it stands right now, I have 200 minutes, well, with the old schedule, let's go back to semester. I had 200 minutes of direct instruction with my students a week, 200 minutes of direct instruction. 
with this schedule, you're like a child, my seniors are going down to really 60 minutes a week because it's, I, I, it's, I have to teach, I'm going from teaching two 100 minute lessons a week to really teaching one 60 minute lesson a week because that's the way that the cohorts work is that the lesson that I'm teaching on Monday and Tuesday to cohort A, I'm going to be teaching to cohort B on Thursday and Friday. So, and there's some kind of assumption that they're doing some asynchronous or basically offline work with you. Like you've assigned them and extra hours yes. of work. And that's why we also say con- direct instruction, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we also have to consider like, because there's a lot of concerns around um, screen time and just the ways that a lot of our students have other obligations at home and at work, let's be honest, especially uh, at a school like Lincoln, kids are, a lot of our students are working. Um, there's also that piece of there's a limited amount of extra work that you can give someone to do independently. And so as great as an idea that is, we are like one hour a week will be great contact face to face. And then I'll just give them two hours at home. Like that's not really realistic or practical. And if you think about if a kid had an hour long class or 55 minute, five days a week previously, that's closer to you're pushing five hours, right? Mm -hmm. A little less than five hours. Sorry for my math teachers out there who are like, um, unhappy with my precision, but <laughs> shout out Graham Ruby. So with that in mind, right? Like it's still, you, you can't, because again, we're in a pandemic. So we have to relook at the way learning and teaching is happening and thinking about, you know, people's brains and what else is going on that's getting in the way of like traditional mm-hmm. learning. And to be clear, I think our audience knows that we're pretty adamant about like kids are still learning whether or not it's, it's formally in school, like they're yes. learning all kinds of things. And um, yes. I don't think they're behind. I think we talked a little bit about that last time. It's not Absolutely. behind in the way because all this is fabricated anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. Where we mm-hmm. say kids need to be at a certain point. Um, but it is interesting to yeah. think about that. You can't just shove that learning outside. So then it makes you wonder, well, what are we fighting 11 days for? Why are we fighting like, for 11 days? It's And that means that um, 11 days, that is 11 hours with each teacher in-person instruction with their teacher. So like for me, it will be 11 hours, hours total with my like first period students between March 15th and the end of the year. Mm-hmm. I like, and I, I also... I really do want to pause and say, I think that because of the intensity and passions and feelings of these conversations, it oftentimes comes as though like teachers are not considering the mental health of their students, right? I obviously understand that there is the need for in-person instruction. I, I, I absolutely and unequivocally want the listeners to know that I recognize that in-person instruction is valuable. I believe that to my core. I believe that this is horrible for, for students to not be in person. I think it's about mitigating risk, right? Cost versus benefit at this point. And I think that that's the conversation that has to be had is the cost versus benefit. And 11 days for seniors, nine days for 10th and 11th graders to potentially have transmission rates go up, mm-hmm. have teachers potentially contract the virus, and if not die, have long-term health implications because they contracted the virus. It's, you know, it's not unheard of that teachers are contracting the virus across the country. Um and to to be very clear, everybody, 
there are reports that show that sending students back to in-person is not this like happy-go-lucky like rose-colored glasses experience for students either that it, it is traumatic in a different way to go back to school with these circumstances well and that's i think what people forget they're like i wish you could go back to that way and as someone who went back to that way like you don't teach the same way you can't and especially mm-hmm. in places where like you have some of your students online and some are in person in the same class period you cannot do the same things you cannot do the strategies you can't do the turn and talk like turn to your neighbor work on this handout together nope no one's touching nobody's handout you are yelling at each other through a mask across the room maybe right like it's just i think there's this this disconnect from what is so perfect and it's just it's not perfect. Like, is it, is it wonderful to have kids in person? Of course. Like I do, I think, yeah, I definitely benefit, but I think there's a, I honestly find that I can offer a more equitable experience in either everybody's in person, which isn't what's happening or everybody's online. Mm-hmm. And so just like the things you're able to do and, and particularly like, I don't have to worry about COVID. I don't have to worry about yelling through a mask and not being able and getting a headache because I cannot talk loud enough for the students in the back of my room and then asking kids over and over, say that again, say that again, say that again. It gets tiring, right? Like there's just a lot of these little factors that when you're in an online space, you don't have to worry about in the same way. So I think it's hard Mm -hmm. for people to envision that when you've been in one format for so long, you're like looking over there, you know, the grass is little, little mermaid, right? The grass is always greener and somebody Mm -hmm. else's lake, but it's just not, that's really not the reality of the situation. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think when you hear get back to um, get our kids back in school, what that really means is, can we please get back to something that looks like life did before last yeah. March? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. believe me, I am 100% there too. I mean, Absolutely. we all are. But but here's some things that I think just just you have to, as a leader in the community, as a school board member, as a teacher, as whomever, you need to keep you need to keep forefront. And that is this, there are no vaccinations for kids. Yep. None right now, adults only. So every kid in that school is at risk. There are no vaccinations for kids. Number two, probably most parents, unless they're in healthcare or maybe some emergency workers will not be vaccinated either. Yep. I'm 58 and I'm not vaccinated yet and I'm not likely to be. I mean, I'm on the, you know, I'll be in group B2 or whatever it is. So it's going to be a while. And, you know, parents are younger than me, so they're not vaccinated either. Now, if you live in a multi-generational household, you may have some older people in your household and hopefully they're vaccinated. But our vaccination process has been very, very slow. Yeah. So that's the reality. You don't have you don't have your herd yet. You don't have any herd immunity. You don't, you just have a herd of potential sick kids. So, you know, number two, let's look how this has been going. I've been paying close attention on Twitter. Literally none of the people that I know socially have died because, but all of the, you know, I follow a lot of black authors on Twitter, a lot of journalists. And let me tell you, Every time someone posts, my aunt just died of COVID, they are a brown person or a black person. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the death rates from this disease are overwhelmingly hitting populations of color. Yeah. So what you're really saying is we know that kids of color, families of color will be at more risk and we're fine with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're fine with that. You know, and I... And I hate to say it this way. My parents live in a small 
a neighborhood down in Southern California that's, you know, gated and private and always has been. And um, my brother was telling me yesterday, he said, people around, they just walk around, you know, no one's wearing a mask. And it's like, because they are in such a rarefied little bubble, you know, very little expensive neighborhood. It's inconceivable to them that anyone will get sick. And it's the truth because it's like, look, you guys are wealthy. You have the best health care. When vaccines are available, you will be at the top of the list. You will get them and your life will continue on happily, blissfully free of all these concerns. That is not Tacoma, right? So what what we're saying is we know kids are going to get sick. There's no way to vaccinate them. It's just going to happen. It will happen. Mm -hmm. We're okay with that. Maybe kids will die. Maybe they won't. You know, it's kind of uh, the the death rate's much lower. The illness and long-term injury rate is not necessarily lower. Mm -hmm. We know they'll take it home to their families. Their parents aren't vaccinated yet. Maybe their grandparents are. Those parents are more likely to die because communities of color are disproportionately affected. And we're fine with that. We're Mm -hmm. fine with that for 11 days of instruction. Yes. And and this is where... I tweeted about this a couple of days before the CDC released their new like return guidelines. And this is the part that th- this is <laughs> I where I get really emotional and I get really angry is because you're absolutely right, is that we are okay with BIPOC students carrying more of the burden. Um, I have, I have dove into research (laughs) regarding this um and I was shocked by what I found I knew I knew it was true right we have been hearing that black and brown communities are carrying more of the burden of this virus than white communities but when I saw the numbers they were more shocking than I was anticipating so um Hispanic children are eight times more likely to be hospitalized than white children Um, Black children are five times more likely to be hospitalized than white children of the children that have died. So, yes, the numbers are very low, but 78 percent of the children that have died from COVID are children of color. So 45 percent Hispanic, 29 percent black, um, 4 percent non-Hispanic American Indian or Alaska Native. Um, I'm just like just spewing stats right now. Right. So. Hispanic and Black children, they had higher rates of underlying health conditions, so 45% and 29% respectively. Among white children, only 15% had underlying health problems. Of the 570 children the CDC looked at with MIS-C, so MIS-C is that that, um, impact of the organs that happen about three to four weeks after a child contracts COVID. Mm -hmm. So of those and those are long-term impacts. There's long-term impacts on their hearts and their lungs and their organs for potentially the rest of their life. Um, between March 2nd and July 18th, of those were um, only 13% were white, 40% were Hispanic, and 33% of those children were Black. Mm. And and low-income communities of color, are the adults are nine times more likely to die from covid So like you said, like, right, these kids are going to go to school, potentially, they will contract, there will be, there will be COVID in the schools Um, with a secondary school. You can't prevent it. And And I just, yeah. To what Evelyn said earlier about like a plan or a meeting with the district and stuff, there's been no publication or 
feels like almost no acknowledgement of all of these. What do we do if, and you just can't go into the situation without an if, like, even if it's a crappy, if like there should be an outline plan for it. So when your students and your BIPOC students catch it or pass it on or whatever, whatever, and what, what's going to happen? How are we helping those families? How are we helping um, mitigate like the trauma that comes from that experience, the medical care that needs to happen? Because you can't help the family when their family member dies. There is no helping that. There is like 11 days of in-person instruction this year, 11 days for seniors, nine days for 10th and 11th graders, 10 days for freshmen. For that, we are saying we are willing to allow communities of color to carry more of the burden because they inevitably will. We also know that the vaccination efforts are drastically missing communities of color. So even people of color that are qualified to receive the vaccine right now, that live in multi-generational homes with with school-age kids, are not receiving the vaccine at the same rate as white communities. I... I don't care. I I don't care to have the conversation about what the risk is and the risk is really low and we can mitigate the risk. I care to have the conversation of why are we okay with communities of color carrying the bulk of that risk, regardless of what the risk is. I am not comfortable with my students being expected to carry that risk. And also we know that rates of a transmission in communities of color are just higher. They just are. They are five to eight times higher than white communities because in our system of racism, people of color are more likely to work in jobs where they cannot work from home. And so let's go the opposite direction, right? Where it's like, okay, so a child, they're like, oh, schools aren't the places where transmission's happening. That's not where, okay, fine. They're getting it at home because their parents can't work from home. So a kid is going to mm-hmm. contract the virus, come to school, and all of a sudden that school community, because schools are communities. They are, yeah. In a cohort A, I don't like, people have to realize in a high school, having two cohorts, and on cohort A, we are going to have anywhere from 600 to 800 people in a high school building at Lincoln High School on any given day. That's how I think many people are thinking cohorts are like 20 kids. Like, no, no we're talking about we're talking about hundreds people. of people yeah. in that building. So then kids that are more likely to contract the virus at home are coming into the school community, meaning that teachers that work in low-income communities of color, schools in those areas, are at a greater risk of contracting the virus at school than a white community. I just, I don't care what the numbers say about elementary schools because it's a different beast. I don't care what the numbers say about middle to upper white community schools. I don't care about that. I care about what does the data say about low-income communities of color and the schools in those communities. And I have not heard anything about that. And I just, it, you can tell that I'm angry. Um, well, and I'll be the flippant just... person to say that like uh, white people tend to be reckless when it comes to this. And so yes. I, I'm, I'm just going to say there's going to be some white teacher out there, me, uh, that's me, uh, running around like, oh, didn't wash my hands, didn't quite wear my mask over my nose, pick up some COVID, a little bit of, a little bit of asymptomatic COVID and show up to school and pass it on to my students, right? And oh, so that's also like that burden that's there. And I think some of that flippantness or even people who are careful because- we know, I, I know tons, I can count, yeah, on multiple hands, the number of people that I know were so careful and still contracted it. 
Um, well, and so also, I, I think that's yeah, the other and part, also, right? That's that's here too. And also the CDC surveyed over 5,000 middle school and high school students. And they show that mask wearing is only like effective if it's like 90% worn, right? Like the 90% um, use, like 62%, only 62% of students are saying that their peers are wearing their masks um, well in high school and middle school. That but, sure they do it in the classroom because the teacher's there, but the sure. moment they go into passing period, which by the way, yeah. the school district only left five minutes, which is our normal passing period what? time, five minutes for passing period to have 600 kids go from their first period to their second period, have 600 kids go from their second period to their third period. So y'all, you have to realize that in elementary school, a teacher is only being exposed to their 25 students, half cohort A and cohort B. So really like 10 to 12 students um, in a week. I am going to be exposed to all of my students in a week, a secondary teacher is going to be exposed to what 130 students in a week. Easily, easily, easily 100. And just that's just my students. Yeah. Not to mention that my students, they don't stay in their pod. They go yeah. from their first period to their second period. So they're going to be in a classroom with their 15 yeah. people in their first period pod. But then coming to my second period pod with another 15 students. And then going to their third period pod with another 15 students, they're not staying in pods the way that elementary is. By the way, let me just add on here. Uh, I was looking at the CDC, like things about, you know, mitigating strategies. And just for people who haven't been into school in a hot second, um, Evelyn mentioned buses, right? So like it has this list of places in school settings. And then it has like this ranking of like availability, adherence to mass use, distance and adherence to social distancing, visible cues, by the way, how many stickers and signs that need to go up, um, you know, use of disinfectant. Okay. So those are the categories you should have, but listen to all the places in school buses, entrance and exits. By the way, that's like um, 10 to 15 in any given building, especially high schools, student pickup and drop off, front office and reception, all the stairways and hallways. That's a lot. Elevators. By the way, there are elevators in some schools. Locker, hundreds of lockers. Uh, classrooms, lots of classrooms. Staff break rooms, mail rooms, staff restrooms, student restrooms, cafeteria, kitchen area, clinic, nurses office, isolation areas, gymnasiums, locker rooms, auditorium, libraries, media rooms, music performance and classrooms, outdoor areas and playgrounds, athletic fields, which is usually several different ones. And then it has like a list of like, and all these other places like indoor pools. Like that's so many places in any given American middle school or high school it's massive and I think even our elementaries yeah. are not that small either so um we can and, think about all these places yes. that have to be addressed and yes. yeah and also addressed. I think that also brings me to the inequity in the facilities that students of color versus white students are more likely to attend right that um I'm going to just read a quote from the head of the of the NEA so the nation's teachers union um, Becky Pringle, she says, many schools, especially those attended by Black, Brown, Indigenous, and poor white students have severely outdated ventilation systems and no testing or tracing programs. State and local leaders cannot pick and choose which guidelines to follow and which students get resources to keep them safe. And too many schools do not have in place the basic protections that the CDC has said are universally required. And so, like you mentioned, all of these places students of color are far more likely to attend very old schools that have ventilation systems that just don't work. And so it's just the, for me, I just keep it. It's like, 
it's not safe for any kid, in my opinion, right now, any, any secondary student. But also, students of color are significantly more at risk. We read the data. They are five to eight times more at risk than their white peers. And let me tell you, I believe so deep down in my soul that if if a white child was eight times more likely to contract a virus than a Hispanic child, we would not be going back to school. If- I think I think here's the thing, though. I mean, sort of from a white perspective, because I've grown up all in very white areas until I moved to Tacoma. And in the area of Tacoma I live in is very white as well. Um, if you believe that something can impact you, then you suddenly do take it very seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's an assumption here that is really the base of the problem. And and I think that's because I, I think that a lot of the parents I know who are particularly vocal and active are white women. And, um, and I just don't know if, I don't think that's entirely fair, but um, that I think that way, but um, I just don't know who the school board is hearing from. Mm-hmm. But the reality here is this. So let's pick the the widest um, school you can. Uh, Geiger is, is quite near where I live. And I'll say, you know, it draws students from across the district. You know, I think the majority of the students are probably white, looks like to me. But, you know, that's not going to be a safe arena, right? I mean, the teachers are going to come in with whatever their life brings with them. The kids are going to come in from whatever their family life brings with them. Someone's going to be sick. And it's going to spread. I mean, it just it yeah. just is, yeah, it just right? Is. We've been talking, you know, tisk tisking about, you know, people who are foolish enough to go to Super Bowl parties or, or you know, even stand on the side of the road and watch car racing and all of these things, you know, tisk tisk. This is a super spreader event. They're not wearing masks, and and we're going to encourage this because no, kids are kids. Right. And it's it's hard as an adult. I, you know, during the time when restaurants were open in the summer, Joe and I went to Anthony's and ran into someone I knew from several years ago at work. And, you know, she came over and said, you know, hello, how are you? And can I give you a hug? And, you know, you can't really say no, you know, get away from me. We were both wearing masks and it was sort of tentative. But your basic instinct is to get close to people. It is hard to train yourself to not do that. It will not be possible for these kids to yeah. not get close to each other. Yes. So they will get sick. It, it will happen. All of them. I mean, not every child, but regardless of race or income or anything else, your child will be among people who are potentially contagious. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Period. So, so what are we yeah what, what do we do, we do about, about it? it yeah i actually think this would be a good time um i can we pull a little iwl uh our final segment title and we'll give our recommendations okay our final segment do your fudging homework interchangeable White ladies exactly and we've got a lot of homework for all of our listeners um evelyn did you think of something off the top of your head that you were thinking we could actually do or people could do you know, I was thinking more that so someone like me, I've been isolating for a long time and yeah. we go out very rarely. But um, it is it is important to me as someone who doesn't even have a connection with the schools that we get this virus under control in our community yeah. and and defeat it as quickly as we possibly can. And I don't see for myself that opening up the schools is 
likely to help with that strategy. So from my perspective, if I were to contact anyone, you know, in charge of making these decisions, it would be from the perspective of, I don't see this as being particularly good for Tacoma right now. Yeah. So I would just encourage you and listeners to call and to email, like do both, the school board. So there's a bit of, you know, as you mentioned, that sometimes the most vocal people are actually the minority in any given perspective or point of view, but they just happen to have the time or understand how to navigate the system, right, in order to speak mm-hmm. up and be really loud and vocal. Well, the system, so, the system works for some people, yes. right? The system really works. So, I mean, yes. it works yes. for me. Great, right? I know, yeah. I know someone who's yeah. on the school board. I know people who are on the city council. I can call people who I know. And they will take my call or they will yeah. respond yes. to my email. It works yeah. for me. So, of course, yeah. that's how it goes. Yep. Yeah. And so I just want to encourage people, even if you aren't sure if someone's going to listen to you or hear you or check your email or block you or whatever the case is, take that risk, right? Spend five minutes crafting an email, send it to the school board, do a follow-up call a couple days later. And the same thing I would say also for um, directly talking to the superintendent, you know, this is technically the highest person, obviously mm-hmm. the school board and the superintendent, both are really high positions. So, you know, send that same email, a similar email and make the call so that they understand um, you know, what you care about and why you're saying that 11 days is not worth it. Yeah. I, and I think that that's really key, right? That that 11 days is the cost versus benefit is the number of actual full in, in-person in instruction days between the start of March and the end of the year. Um, 11 for seniors. I can't, I can't, like, when I saw that number, it was wild to me. Um, I also think, like, posting on social media and tagging the school district and the superintendent is a really powerful thing that, right, like I said, for the most part, people that were okay with or happy with staying virtual were by and large, not saying anything, right? Because there wasn't anything to say something about. And so for a very long time, I heard that the OSPI, also, if you feel inclined, go ahead and contact OSPI, which is the state level, um, that we're contacting all of these different groups where people complaining that they wanted their kids back in person, right? And so it just felt overwhelming when I think actually the vast majority of people want to be virtual. Maybe um, my anecdotal evidence is wrong in that sense. But I think that making sure that your voice is heard is important, right? It it is key. Um, You have a right to be heard. You have a right to say what you want to say. And I also want to encourage you, even if you don't have children, even if you feel like you don't have any skin in the game in terms of education, um, I really believe that this is an equity and anti-racism issue. I think that the stats that we highlighted today in the episode really push that, that this is absolutely an issue about um, BIPOC communities and this is systemic racism. This is it, right? This is where the systems that are built that disadvantage Um, black and brown communities more than white communities. Like these are the moments that the systems are created. And so if you feel strongly about that, I really want to encourage you to reach out to the school board and reach out to the superintendent, reach out to the city council. I mean, why not? Of As a community member, you um, want to advocate for these communities. And I think I'll say one one further thing from, from my perspective. I think the issue has not been framed properly. Mm -hmm. I think the issue is 
Should we return our children to schools when we can do so in a safe manner so that we will continue to lower the contagion rates of this mm -hmm. dreadful disease? You know, everyone would agree with that. Should we return them to school where they're at more risk than they are now? I would say no. Should we return them to school where there's a risk of further contagion spreading into all of our community areas? I would say no. Mm -hmm. So until the schools can return in a way that is safe and is following the CDC guidelines and likely to lead to fewer cases of COVID-19. Well, with that, listeners, go do the homework. And uh, ladies, you want to try to do a collective buy? Okay. One, two, three. Bye. Bye. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows, Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.